Well, who do you vote for? I didn't ask who did you vote for. Our national election is over, right? I asked who do you vote for? Who do you vote to be head, ruler, king of your life? The world has answered this question in no uncertain terms. The world wants nothing of the rule of God. Autonomy is the first and highest virtue. Our nation has stated that as fact and has been falling all over itself, particularly in recent years, to see who can shout that the loudest. But who do you vote for? Who do you vote to be head, ruler, king of your life? We're continuing our series in the Psalms this morning, again looking at Psalm 2. I preached Psalm 1 at the beginning of last year. Psalm 1, along with Psalm 2, were positioned at the beginning of the collection of the Psalms as an introduction to the whole. Psalm 1 paints a picture of this blessed man, a man whom we are to emulate, a man whose blessing comes from the Lord alone as he chooses to cleave to the law of the Lord and takes delight in it. Psalm 2 will make clear that this blessed man, this blessed one, is a man whom God chooses to lead his people and the nations. Thus, ultimately, blessing comes by taking refuge in him, as we're exhorted at the end of Psalm 2. Psalms 1 and 2 are intended to communicate. As an introduction to the whole of the Psalter is intended to set the tone for the book to let the reader know where the rest of the Psalter is headed. These two are taken together and they emphasize that this idea of blessedness or happiness is set forth really as the highest pursuit of man. It communicates that this blessedness comes ultimately from the hand of God through his word and his king. And furthermore, again, these two Psalms communicate that this message of blessedness that man ought to pursue is a message for all peoples. Peoples from all nations ought to pursue blessedness in the Lord. That is, in fact, the message of this psalm. The blessedness that men seek is found only by submitting to the king chosen by the Lord, and we know that that is the Lord Jesus. As we hear this psalm communicate that message, there are four voices to be heard. There's the voice of the psalmist who introduces a psalm with a question in verse 1. The voice of the nations in their rebellion against the Lord in verses 2 through 3. The voice of the Lord in response to the nation's rebellion in 4 through 6. And then we see the voice of the king chosen of the Lord in verses 7 through 9. And finally, the voice of the psalmist again concluding in verses 10 through 12 with a warning for the nations. Well, let's read chapter 2 this morning together. And then I'll pray and we'll get into the rest of the passage. Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. 
Father, thank you again for the time we have together and for your word, which is true, which you sanctify us by. Thank you for the truths that we'll hear today. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts collectively would indeed be acceptable in your sight. You are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, let's go ahead and listen to that first voice again, the voice of the psalmist as he introduces this psalm in verse 1. Again, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? That's a question that opens up this psalm. It's a question that opens up the whole of the Psalter. Think about that. Why do the nations rage? I've made this point before about the Psalms, but they are a hymn book for the people of God. Many of them were hymns sung regularly by God's people at various feasts, celebrations, sacred times. And yet time and time again, we're introduced to psalms that are addressed to the nations. Psalms that call out to the nations. Psalms that call all people to praise the Lord their God. Why is that? The answer should be clear to us as believers that God is not only Lord of Israel, Lord of the church, but God is Lord over all. And as we share that message, particularly as we think about Christmas coming up, we acknowledge and celebrate that God is with us, understanding that the significance of that is greater than just us. But it's that God has come in the flesh. God has come in to visit humanity. He has made himself known to all people to the end that all people would come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. His desire is to redeem all of humanity. Of course, that doesn't mean that all people will be saved, as universalists assert. But that does mean that as we look at passages like Revelation chapter 5, where there we see the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, being worshipped, we hear things like this, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God. In other words, the salvation we speak of that we sing is intended for people from every tribe and tongue and nation. We must never lose sight of that. The Lamb died to purchase some from all peoples. Getting back to our text here, why again is the psalmist concerned about the nations? Why should God's people be concerned about the nations? Because the nations, all people groups, are a part of the redemptive plan of God. That's why we send missionaries today. That's why we talk about supporting the Lottie Moon offering. That's why we pray for missionaries as they labor in the field. That's why we preach the gospel to ourselves around the dinner table at family gatherings to our neighbors, co-workers, friends, relatives, etc. Because the redemptive plan of God is aimed at all people. But again, the psalmist opens up, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? There seems to be a sense of mockery here, as it is utter foolishness to try to reject the rule of the sovereign of the universe. But I think it's more than that. There is a sense of pleading, a sense of concern in the words of the psalmist for the nations. And we'll see that concern laid out as we get to the end of this psalm. The idea behind the word to rage here is to be in tumult. You get the sense of a violent storm tossing a ship about in the sea except the violent storm here is among the nations. And that word for plot in vain actually has the same root of the word that we found in Psalm 1, meaning to meditate. So whereas in Psalm 1, the blessed one of the Lord meditates on the word of God day and night, there we talked about thinking the word over, bringing it up, kind of like a cow chewing cud, 
chewing on the same piece over and over again, bringing it back up, chewing it over again. We think about that as we think about the idea of meditating. Here we get the idea of the nations murmuring to themselves, their apparent discontent. Taken together, you imagine a sea of people grumbling amongst themselves over and over again in a clearly agitated and uncontrolled way. Well, what are they saying? We hear from the nations in verses 2 through 3. Go ahead and look there again. It says, The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. The description here, in case you didn't get it from the previous verses, is of universal rebellion. The text says that the kings of the earth and the rulers, again, this is Hebrew poetry, so we're talking about the same group, The kings, the rulers, these are heads of the nations, thus representatives of the nations, having just gone through our own national election. We understand how important a national leader is. In this case, these heads of state have all gathered themselves together. They formed a partnership. They're unified, finally, in defiance of the Lord and his anointed. This is the Tower of Babel Part 2, except there's no tower. There's only the universal defiance against the will of the Lord. Specifically, the text says they assemble themselves together against the Lord and against his anointed. The term for anointed is thrown around quite a bit in Christian circles. It's really used as a designation for one who's specially chosen for a task. One would be anointed usually with oil as a symbol of empowerment, as a means of dedication. Biblically, one could be anointed for religious services in the role of high priest in Israel or probably more often referenced for the role of the king. It's been suggested that this psalm was used most often in the context of coronation ceremonies for the kings of Judah. In theology, the term anointed came to refer ultimately to the Messiah, which is a word derived from the term anointed. The Messiah, the Christ, no, Christ isn't Jesus' last name. I just like to remind us of that every once in a while. The Christ... Jesus is the anointed one of God, the chosen one. As we see in this psalm, the one set apart by God to serve as king over all. Now, why is he the Lord's anointed? Have you ever thought about that? You ever considered that? Well, obviously because God chose him, right? God set him apart. God anointed him. He is the sent one of God. We've already read Hebrews chapter 1, where it says that Jesus, the son, is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his nature. He is God of God. We read that even in the the creed that we read earlier this morning. In Colossians, it says that he's the image of the invisible God. He is God in the flesh. Who better to send? Who greater to send than the second person, the second member of the Trinity to do your work? But Jesus also proved why he is the anointed one during his earthly ministry. We are in the middle of a series in the Gospel of John. One of my favorite quotes from Jesus in the Gospel of John is in John chapter 4, verse 34. When the disciples return to Jesus at the well after he's just spoken to this woman, they bring him food to eat. They say, Master, eat. We know you're tired. We know you're weary. It's been a long journey. You need to take something to eat. What does Jesus say? He says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Have you ever turned around a meal to do the will of God? I can't say that I have often. Well, that verse summarizes Jesus' attitude and actions concerning the will of his Father, the one who sent him. Food and drink are necessary for human life. Jesus was human. He was a man. 
He wasn't by that statement declaring that he would never eat again, but he was indicating that there was a sense of satisfaction and fulfillment that he received in doing the will of God that satisfied him in a way that food could not. Jesus was a man driven with an intensity unmatched by any other to do the will of God, his father, the one who sent him. As we saw in Psalm 1, Jesus took the light in the law of the Lord, in the word of God, in the will of his Father, above anything else. Listen to how it's described elsewhere. In John chapter 5, verse 30, Jesus said, I can do nothing of my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. John chapter 6, verse 38, I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. John chapter 7, verse 16, my teaching is not my own, but him who sent me. John 7, 28, you know me and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true and him you do not know. I know him for I come from him and he sent me. John 8, 28 and 29, when you have lifted up the sun, then you will know that I am he. And that I do nothing of my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. We could go on. The point is that Jesus is the anointed one, the chosen one, the beloved son with whom the Father is well pleased. Precisely for his loyalty, his fidelity, his intense, earnest desire to do the will of the one who sent him. We saw the effect of his fidelity to the will of his father in the strength of his ministry, even as he faced the cross. He was that tree planted by streams of water, as it said in Psalm chapter one, as he faced the cross. Even in the time of his greatest weakness in the garden, where we saw him pleading in distress, his leaf did not wither. He says, Lord, let this father, let this cup pass from before me. Nevertheless, not my will, but what? Your will be done. He pursued the will of God even to death, even death on a shameful cross. And for that reason, the text says in Philippians 2, God highly exalted him. But again, his fidelity to the will of God stands in stark contrast to what we see from the nations. Back to our psalm again, we see that the peoples of the earth, led by their leaders, have taken their stand against the Lord and against his anointed, ultimately against their rule over them. Look again at verse 3. They say, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Bonds, cords. They feel tethered to the Lord and his anointed. They feel captured. They feel ensnared. They feel hindered, hemmed in. The Lord and his anointed have oppressed them, and they're taking their stand in defiance of their oppressive regime. Does this sound familiar? Reverend Al Mohler called autonomy the great myth of the modern age. Indeed, it is one of the most dangerous myths. Autonomy is a desire for self-rule. It's aided by the conviction that you know best, that no one else can tell you what is best or good for your life, that you alone can determine what will make for your happiness. That is, after all, what we all want, right? That is what all people want. They want to be happy. They want to experience contentment, peace, wholeness. We would call that blessedness. We all want that, and there's nothing inherently wrong with desiring it. The problem is in the way we pursue it. 
The world will tell you that in order for you to be happy, you have to be free to make your life whatever you want it to be. You are king. You rule. You make your own law. As humanity, we no longer need those oppressive, outdated shackles of religion. We can chart our own course. We do life our way. God says in his word, he made them male and female. In the very beginning, that's one of the first things that he makes clear. He made them male and female. The world says male and female are just social constructs. People can use to be whatever they want, whenever they want. Sometimes, you know, you can change it multiple times a day if you want. Everyone around them should not only accept it, but celebrate it. Cast aside the bonds, the shackles of that outdated religion that says there are only two genders. It's all in the eye of the beholder. God says in his word that a man shall cleave to a woman as his wife in marriage. The world says anyone can marry anyone they want for however long they want. And not only should everyone accept it, they should also celebrate it. Again, cast aside the bonds, the shackles of that outdated religion that says only a man and woman can marry and that it has to be for life. God says in his word that all life is precious, that he is the giver and taker of life. The world says a woman's right to choose is the most important thing. Even more now, we're being told that since we have the technology to engineer the right kinds of genes for our children, that we should and only keep the best ones. And on the other side of the spectrum, that a person who's terminally ill or otherwise just prefers to go out on their own terms should be able to do so whenever they choose. Cast aside the bonds, the shackles of that outdated religion that states that man's worth comes from being made in the image of their creator. Man's worth is what we make of it. We are cosmic accidents anyway, created by chance. Now, these are the larger issues in our society, but of course, we all make a myriad of decisions daily in the exercise of our own will, either when we fail to consider the will of the Lord or else in open rebellion to it. When we refuse to temper our lusts, desiring or pursuing a person or thing that does not belong to us, we're living in rebellion against the Lord and his anointed. When we lash out in anger, even when we're clever enough to hide it from others, justifying it by saying that someone has made us mad, we're living in rebellion against the Lord and his anointed. When we boast about our accomplishments in the flesh as if God and men owe us their allegiance, or else when we boast about our possessions to outshine our neighbor, we're living in rebellion against the Lord and his anointed. When we're lazy at work, checking in late, leaving early, when we're lazy at home, not paying attention to those who are around us, not caring for them, when we're lazy amongst our church family, not using the gifts that we've been given to serve, when we fail to live up to our God-given responsibilities, we're living in rebellion against the Lord and his anointed. Sean mentioned this one earlier, but when we're worried, when we become anxious, when we allow the anxieties that, that tend to impact us in life to overwhelm our thinking 
and to govern our decisions. Ultimately, we're living in rebellion against the Lord and his anointed, the one who is in control of all things, the one who said, I will never leave you or forsake you, the one who upholds all things by the word of his power, the one who is keeping us, guarding us, protecting us by faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. I give you one more. I'm guilty of this. When we sometimes rail against authority, it's kind of the in vogue thing to do these days. Whatever or whomever the authority may be in our lives, because we don't like who they are, what they have to say, or how they go about their work, even though God has placed them in authority over us, we're living in rebellion ultimately against the Lord and his anointed. How are you doing with those things? I'm sure we could expand that list, but how are you doing in your daily life in pursuing the will of God? Is the will of God more important to you than your passions, your possessions, your pride? Are you willing to pass those things up in favor of doing his will? That is the true test of discipleship. If you say that you're a disciple of Christ, you'll live like him. You'll live under his rule. You'll live as he lived in subjection to the will of his father. As the Proverbs say, you acknowledge him, consider him in all your ways. Getting back to our text. Next, we get to hear from the Lord himself. We get a response to this open rebellion, this cosmic universal treason. What does the Lord have to say? Look at verses four through six as he responds to the nations. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And we've all seen those scenarios where the kid falls out on the floor and is, you know, uh, throwing a temper tantrum. And maybe you see a dad in the background just kind of sitting back and chuckling to himself. And often, some often, maybe not all the time, he's not chuckling because he thinks it's cute but because he thinks it's utterly ridiculous that this kid, this little tiny person, not that I've had these thoughts before, this little tiny person would rebel against his authority, right? And uh, they're not going to get what they're asking for. They're not going to get what they're pleading for. They're just going to get the consequences that come. So he just kind of sits back and observes and watches. I think that's the picture that we see here. As the Lord is listening to the nations and their rebellion, spewing hatred, spewing their rebellious thoughts, their rebellious attitude. The Lord just kind of sits back and laughs. The text says he holds them in derision. He can't seem to contain himself. He's beside himself with laughter. The whole council of the heads of the nations of the earth have assembled themselves together against the Lord to cast him aside, and he simply laughs at them. We see that things happening in the world around us, and we grow anxious. We grow worried. We get flustered, not knowing what's going to happen next. And yet the Lord simply sits back and laughs. Why? Because he's the one who sits in heaven. He is over all. He is above all. And he is completely unconcerned with the machinations of men, their pretensions. But once he's done laughing, it's time to get down to business. The text says, then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. While it is laughable that the nations would suppose that they could simply cast off the Lord's rule over them, it is still sin. 
I like that R.C. Sproul called sin cosmic treason. It is cosmic treason, and it will be met with wrath. In this case, the Lord's response is simply to point them to his anointed. When they take counsel together, they rebel together, they seek to cast off his rule together, the Lord simply laughs and points at his chosen one, his anointed. He says, you know what? I'm going to let you talk to this guy over here. He'll get you straightened out. And he does that precisely because he's given his anointed authority to rule and to judge over the nations. God says, I've already made my choice. I've already made my decision. And now you're going to hear about it. You're going to hear about it from the man I've chosen. And we hear from the Lord's anointed in the next section, verses 7 through 9. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them into pieces like a potter's vessel. The Lord has given his anointed the authority to rule and judge. Again, we sit back and we grow anxious over the evil that we see in the world. We see injustices running rampant, immorality running rampant, and we wonder why. Why does it have to be this way? How can they get away with these things? And yet the Lord just kind of sits back and he laughs. And he points his anointed and he says, remember, my anointed has been given the authority to rule and to judge. And he is coming. Again, the son says, I'll tell of the decree of the Lord. This is what the Lord has said to me. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Most see this as a fulfillment of the Lord's promise to David in 2 Samuel 7. There the text says, the Lord declares to you, he's speaking to David, that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. That's the promise that God made to David. That's why since they've been looking for that Davidic king to come. The Lord promised to David he's going to raise up offspring. He promised that he would be a father to that king. And that David's house would be established forever. These words all point to and are fulfilled in the Messiah. The anointed of God. The chosen king. This Messiah would have a special relationship with God like no other. That is the picture that we're given of Jesus' relationship with the Father in the New Testament. The Father concerning the Son in Matthew chapter 3, verse 17, after Jesus was baptized by John, and behold, a voice from heaven said this, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And again, Matthew 17, 5, on the Mount of Transfiguration, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And the Son concerning the Father said this in Matthew 7, 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Matthew 10, 32, everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny my, before my father who is in heaven. John chapter 3, verse 35, and commenting on the relationship between the father and the son, the father 
loves the Son and has given all things into his hands. There are countless other passages that we could look at. Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise to David. He is the anointed one, the chosen of God to rule over the nations. Again, back to our text, the son is given rulership and judgment. Verse 8, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. He gives the nations to the son to rule. They are his. He offers them to him without cause. The heads of the nations who are in rebellion each have one nation to rule. And that just for a season. Here, the Davidic king, the anointed Lord, is given charge over all nations. And his rule is established forever. He is the king of kings, the Lord of lords. Moreover, he's given judgment to the son. Look at verse 9. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. The rod is a corrective tool. In this case, the rod is made of iron and will be used to break the nations into pieces. They will be humbled. They will be brought low before this king, the anointed one of God. The Lord has given his anointed the authority to rule and judge, and he will do it, rest assured. The next time you are tempted to worry, when you look around at the nations, our nation included, who are collectively thumbing their noses at God, just remember this, that God has established his king in Zion, that he has given authority to rule, and that he has given judgment in his hands, and that he will bring it to pass. In his first coming, Jesus came and died and rose to save us from the power and penalty of sin. In his second coming, Jesus will come to save us from the presence of sin. And he'll bring rule and judgment from heaven with him. Well, where does that leave us in verses 10 through 12? These are the conclusion of the psalm. We're brought back to the voice of the psalm writer. Listen to what he says there as he warns the kings of the earth. For a final time, now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. I mentioned earlier, I sense a genuine concern here in the words of the psalmist. The psalmist seems to be genuinely concerned for the nations in light of all that has just been said about the Lord and his anointed, he calls upon the nations to be wise, be warned. Wise up, he says. Consider your ways. Then he tells them what wisdom looks like in this case. He says, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Stop your rebellious talk, your silly counsels, and humble yourself before the Lord. Get to work serving him in whatever ways you can and do this quickly. Likewise, kiss the sun. Other versions you'll see do homage to the sun. You get the image in your head of this lowly subject walking into a great room where the king's throne sits, walking up to the king, bowing before him, kissing his hand in humility. The psalm writer is saying, bow down before him. Humble yourself before him. Ingratiate yourself to him. Why? Lest he become angry and you perish in the way. Because his wrath is quickly kindled. Judgment has been given to him. His wrath is the wrath of the almighty sovereign of the universe, and you don't want to face it. Do you hear that sense of urgency? Do you hear that sense of pleading in the words of the psalmist? From the psalmist's perspective, the nations have put themselves in danger rebelling against the Lord. Really, all of us do. Whenever we step outside of the boundaries that God has set, we put ourselves in danger. When we rebel against his will, we put ourselves in danger. Danger from what? Ultimately, danger from him. There are many descriptions of what hell is like. 
I've always thought this one from Revelation was interesting. In contrast, in the context, it's describing those who worship the beast that is set up by the Antichrist in the end times. Whatever you may think about the end times and exactly what happens, at this point, the point is that there will be judgment for those who worship the beast. It says in Revelation chapter 14, verse 9, And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest, day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. You see, we often talk about hell as a worst possible place to go. We think of it as this sort of impersonal, somewhat shrouded by mystery location. We know it's going to be hot. We know there's going to be fire. People talk flippantly about going to hell. But that's not the picture that we get from this passage. It's not just some empty room, some large empty room with a lot of fire. The picture that we get from this passage is of an angry God standing before those who have rebelled against him, before those who have sinned against him, of the Lamb, the Lord, the King of Kings, executing judgment on those who have rebelled against his rule. And yes, there will be fire. Yes, there will be flame. But their fire will never be quenched. And it'll go on forever and ever in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. God is not absent from hell. He's there present in all of his glory and all of his wrath against sin. Hell wouldn't be hell if God didn't exist. Hell wouldn't be hell if God were not holy, if God were not a God of wrath, if God did not rightly determine to judge sin. I've made this analogy before, but God must judge sin and he must judge sin rightly. That means he must repay sin to the degree that it's been offensive to him. You know, I might bump into someone as we're walking down the road and they'll get upset and they might shove me away. They might, you know, say some mean words to me. But if I were to bump into one of those heads of state that we were talking about a little bit earlier, there would be a different set of consequences, right? Because the honor due to them is greater. And therefore, the consequences for offending them is greater. The honor due to the sovereign king of the universe is greater. Therefore, the offense is greater and the consequence is greater for offending him. He is eternally holy. He is eternally righteous. He is eternally good. And so the offense has to be eternal as well. And that's the picture that we see. That's the wrath that may soon be kindled that the psalmist is warning against. And yet the mystery of the cross is that this same Jesus, the anointed king, the king of kings, the chosen one of God, the one who himself kept all of God's laws, we talked about Jesus Christ as the righteous one. Scripture calls him Jesus Christ the righteous. The one who kept all of God's laws, who did all of God's will perfectly, whose food and drink was to do the will of the Father. This one 
took the wrath of God that we deserve in his body on the cross. This is what is meant when the psalmist says in our text, how blessed are all who take refuge in him. While the world believes that blessedness comes apart from him, what separates a believer from an unbeliever is that we have come to know by the grace of God that the blessedness of God can only be found in him. He, Jesus, has purchased our pardon, the pardon for our rebellious nature, the pardon for the cosmic treason that we commit daily. Jesus paid it all. We just sang a little while ago, not in me. Because our redemption is not in us. It's only in him. By faith in him, we're brought into his service, under his rule, into his kingdom. Again, Colossians describes it this way, that we've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. There's no wrath there. There's no condemnation there. There's no expectation of the fury of the Almighty because it's all been satisfied in Christ. Indeed, how blessed are all who take refuge in him. Now again, I asked you earlier, who do you vote for? Who do you vote for daily? To whom do you submit? In whom have you taken refuge? In the world? In the world's leaders? In our national leader? Have you taken refuge in the one who sits in the White House? Is that your confidence? Do you, as so many in the world, take refuge in your own ability to govern your life your way? Or have you sought the blessedness of your creator by taking refuge in the Lord's anointed, King Jesus? If you've answered no to that question, then what are you waiting for? What do you have to show for it now? How has your quest for autonomy been going? And I wonder if you realize that you stand in danger of receiving the wrath of God at any moment. Jonathan Edwards gave this picture of the unbelieving world hanging by a thin thread over the fires of the wrath of God. And that thin thread being the only thing keeping them, the will of God, being patient with them, being the only thing keeping them from falling headlong and facing his wrath at any moment. Today is the day of salvation. There is no other. If you answered yes to that question, that you are trusting, you have taken refuge in him, who have you told recently? Again, as we approach the Christmas season, as much as we may enjoy the festivities of the season, let us not forget nor let others forget that Christmas marked the birth of the King of Kings into the world. His life was a righteous life of a king who always lived under the authority of his Father in heaven. His death was the death of a righteous king for us. His resurrection was the resurrection and justification of a righteous king who died for his people to give them forgiveness in life. And his return will be the return of a king to squash all rebellion, to bring judgment to all who have committed that cosmic treason and sin against their creator God, and to usher in a time of peace and righteousness for his people. We're just saying joy to the world we love and celebrate his first coming. I wonder... Are we all going to be ready when he returns again? Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we do again thank you for this day. We thank you for the time that we have had considering your word. We thank you for your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We thank you that you've made it possible for us to have, to take refuge in him.
We pray that as we go forward, God, that we would remember this truth, that we'd rejoice in this truth, and that we share this truth with others. That there is blessedness, there is happiness to be found in the Lord Jesus and in him alone. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.